I am Plata on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. An important book out now is called No Second Chances, Women and Political Power in Canada. Its author Kate Graham joins me now, as the title says, of the uh, women who have managed to reach high political office in this country, either elected or appointed premier or prime minister, none have won re-election. I'll ask Kate as to why there aren't second chances in politics. She has marvelous insight as she's uh, conducted interviews with those women, only 13 as of September 2021, for the Canada 2020 No Second Chances podcast. The book features transcripts of conversations with Kim Campbell, Christy Clark, Kathleen Wynne, Pauline Marois, Ava Ariak, Kathy Dunderdale, Nellie Cornoria, Pat Duncan, Rachel Notley, Ellison Redford, Caroline Cochran, and Catherine Kalbeck. These are women who have served over the last three decades of various political stripe and from coast to coast to coast. The conversations don't shy away from controversial parts of one's political career. Former Premiers uh, Redford, Clark, Wynne, and Marwa are particularly candid about the reasons for their defeats, as well as the unpleasantness that each encountered as they sought and served in high office. The book also features analysis as to what's happened in the country over the years and where uh, much more can be done to encourage not just gender diversity in our politics. Kate Graham teaches political science at Western and Huron University College. She's a curator and host of the podcast No Second Chances, which can be found at nosecondchances.ca. She was also the Liberal Party of Ontario candidate in the riding of London North Centre in the 2018 and 2022 provincial elections. This book is published by Second Story Press. She joined me from London, Ontario, nearly two weeks ago. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Kate Graham. Uh, Dr. Graham, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Um, this is such a, a fascinating book, and there's so many things that I want to ask you about uh, in terms of um, not just the, the, the people that you talk to in the book, but, but uh, the, the conversations that, that happen and how they happen. But um, in, in general, though, how, how different would our politics be, our country, say? Were more women in office? Oh, I, I think this is uh, one of the missing ingredients in terms of Canada's realizing its uh, its you know potential. Uh, we unfortunately have a country where the vast majority of our senior political roles have been held by older, white, straight, affluent men. And the fact that we're not drawing on the fullness and diversity of the country to uh, pull our top talent, I think, is a real weakness. So, yeah, it's hard to... It's hard to sort of quantify, but I, I do think this is it's a more serious problem than we give it credit for, and it holds great promise for addressing some of the biggest problems that we face by having our, our political leaders actually reflect the people that they serve. And, and, and if you take any problem that we have in this country today and, and you change whoever's deciding or whoever's making, up the, making the decisions, I should say, um, you'll see improvement, whether it's, you know, say, um, education, uh, fixing education or... or um, uh, uh, even uh, I've gone blank now in terms of what, what's ailing our, our country is perfect. Yeah, climate change. And yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the, the debate would change. The tone would change, wouldn't it? Yep. Well, I think you know all of us have you know a limited perspective based on our own experiences, and so you know the research is very clear that teams that are diverse, you know, in a in a corporate context, in a political environment, in, in any setting where you have a diversity of perspectives, you consider more options. The decisions are made. Uh, with a greater awareness of how it will affect people, and ultimately better outcomes are produced. So, you know, seeing more diversity in our politics and seeing elected bodies who do reflect the people that they serve, 
um, it is one of the necessary ingredients for being able to solve big problems like inequality, addressing climate change, things like that. Uh, someone might ask you, um, where has this worked, or what are examples of places that, that, that where women in leadership um, might have succeeded? Are, are you able to cite any, say? Yeah, well, we actually, so this project, and um, just for anyone who, who may not be as familiar with it, so this project started with uh, interviews of all of the women who served as a first minister in Canada, uh-huh. wanting to understand their experiences. And then we, we actually did a second season of the podcast project, looking at countries around the world where they have made measurable progress in terms of diversity um, in their top leadership roles. So we looked at at least one country on every populated continent, mm-hmm. talked to female prime ministers and premiers, but also experts in those countries who've gotten them there. And so I would say that like the, the path is a little bit different in each place, but interventions like quotas, whether it's uh, a legislative quota or something that's voluntarily uh, introduced in each of the political parties, mm-hmm. uh, that matters. Broader um, changes towards gender equity, like childcare policies, like seeing more women um, in leadership roles in every sector. Those are also things that you know translate into more women and a greater diversity of women seeking political office. So there is certainly a lot that we can learn from countries around the world that are progressing faster than Canada is. Uh, what compels these women that you talk to to go into public life? I mean, that's one of the parts I enjoyed reading in terms of uh, the interviews about what what motivates them, say. It's not power, is it? Yeah, it's funny. I, I think when I, you know, at the beginning of interviewing all of the women who served in our top political roles, I think I expected to hear a few of them say, you know, when I was a kid, I, I always knew I wanted to be the prime minister or something like that. Yeah. And in fact, none of them said that. Um, instead, they each had, you know, a, a slightly different uh, story, but essentially the same journey of caring about the place where they were and finding opportunities to contribute in small and big ways, whether it's, you know, Kathleen Wynne staging a protest when girls were forced to wear skirts and going back to school with a note from her mom every day until they changed the rule, or, you know, Eva Eric uh, basically demanding that a Zamponi be able to go out onto the Arctic so that kids could use it as a recreational space. You know, it was these kind of small acts of public service and believing that they could make change and help people around them that led them to get involved in their community and then take on successive leadership roles and then ultimately all make a decision to both run for office and then seek a leadership role. And then, of course, at some point reached our peak position of being first minister, kind of by virtue of being in the project. Uh, they would all reach that point. So, But no, none of them... None of them said out as kids saying, I'm going to be the next prime minister, because I think that sounds like a really powerful, exciting world. That was not the driving motivation for any of them. See, for, for guys, for example, I mean, th- that's easy for some for a guy to say that as a kid. Um, and and some do essentially become prime minister or, first, or premier, if you will, uh, when they say that. But uh, it, it's different for girls, isn't it? Well, I think, you know, when you... When you consistently see that leaders look the same way, so when you know, if we look at our prime ministers, yeah. Canada, you mm-hmm. know they've been almost all of them older, white, straight, affluent men. So it sends a message, and research shows this very early, like age two, three, four, five, where when kids are starting to think about what might be possible for them, if they don't see people in those roles who look like them, it sends sort of an implied message that that's not something that's for you. And so, you know, this is not just a problem of politics. It's a problem in in many different leadership roles. But it's one of the kind of generational effects of 
you know, not having diversity in politics is a problem today. It means that we're not making decisions that benefit the most people. But it also has a, a generational consequence where this whole generation of kids who are looking at those leaders are getting sort of quiet messages very early on mm. that perhaps this isn't a path for them. Yeah. And the title of your book is, is No Second Chances. And, and, and the, the, the pattern, I guess, we've seen in this country is that um, uh, a woman can um, re- reach the, the, uh, the, the role of first minister, um, but then on, on re-election, it, it's, it's a different uh, path altogether. Um, we have a female premier in Manitoba as well as one in Alberta. Um, yep. if, if we uh, look at that pattern, if you will, um, perhaps they won't succeed in re-election. Is that right? Well, I mean, I'm certainly hoping that we start to see this this data change, but uh-huh. you know, we've had very few, um, you know, of more about 330 first ministers now. You know, we're on 14 have been women, yeah. and they tend to last half as long as men. They tend to rise. Uh, in difficult circumstances, this has been coined a glass cliff where women rise only when the chances of failure are the highest. Mm. Think of the sort of Kim Campbell story be a classic example yeah. where the party was going to lose that election. And so it's the only time we've seen a female become the prime minister just as, the, as things are falling apart. So no second chances is about, you know, in a country where we, we re-elect incumbents all the time, we've never re-elected a female first minister to serve through a second elected mandate. And it, I think, speaks a lot more to weaknesses in our, our political culture and institutions than it does about the women themselves. They are they span political stripes. They certainly wouldn't agree with each other on many things, but they've all sort of had this same uh, pattern of having, you know, quite shorter tenures as a group uh, than men. So we need to see that change, and uh, and I hope that, you know, part of reaching uh, equality and part of seeing diversity in politics means we need to see leaders not just get to the top but be able to to hold power uh, at the same level. I think that's a really important part of the picture. Now, Rachel Notley, who you talked to in the book, you, yeah. you talked to her after her uh, after she was defeated. Uh, she's remained in opposition, and so the, the chance of her coming back, say, are, are um, you know, there's a good chance that she's coming back, if you will. Um, but then again, you know, it points to Alberta's politics being unique. I mean, women don't get the second chance, say, once they lose an election to, to um, say, stay on as leader of a party, right? Uh, I mean, there are there are a few exceptions to that, and I mean, each each person has sort of their own their own path and their own story. But what led to the end? Sometimes it is through a general election. Other times it's, um, you know, a decision internal to their party or otherwise. Yeah. And, you know, Christy Clark's political path has been quite different than others. So, you know, it, it will be interesting to see in, in a province like Alberta where there are now, you know, two women who, uh, you know, one that is the premier and right. one will continue yeah. to be the premier. Um, so, yeah, I, I certainly hope that we are we are seeing these things change. But I will name that, you know, we are still mostly talking about white women, only in the territories that we've seen Indigenous women. Mm. So, you know, having uh, female leaders is important, and it's part of it, but it's also the diversity of women um, and understanding gender beyond just being a binary. Um, we, there's lots of lots of still room for growth and improvement. We'll talk about some of the remedies in just a sec, but you mentioned Christy Clark. Um, one of the anecdotes that, that she uh, provides in, in, in her interview with you is, is uh, that I found interesting was, was kids or people that she grew up with um, when she became premier, said, we always knew you'd become premier. But um, And then she would say, in response, how come you could see that and I couldn't? I just thought it was, it was, a, it was an, 
a nice anecdote or, or some, something neat to say. But um, mm-hmm. she um, talks to you about the, 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 mm-hmm. the women she appointed to her cabinet, which I found interesting because, I mean, you know, Thatcher is often, Margaret Thatcher, that is, is often used as an example of, of, you know, being the first woman, if you will, to, to be prime minister of her country. Um, yet she wasn't known as someone who was terribly supportive of other women, was she? Margaret Thatcher? Yeah, and then so Christy Clark sort of um, uh, talks about how she, the women that she, she appointed to her cabinet uh, worked very well with one another and, and did, you yeah. know, hard work, if you will, and yet didn't get the recognition or, or got the criticism, uh, got criticism more than, than recognition, certainly. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this is one thing the book explores a bit, but I, I actually think it's worthy of a fair bit of further research is the difference of the experience for someone who is the first versus someone who is the second or third. Mm. So one thing that I, I know is often, uh, you know, described about uh, Thatcher, but also we heard from many of the women who were the first female in their province or as prime minister, is sort of this pressure to fit into the role as it has historically been defined. Um, the, I, I have to mention Alison Redford's discussion about gray suits. Yeah. If you read the book, she talks about you know when she became the premier. All of a sudden, she went from wearing lots of bright colors into a gray suit every day, yeah, and yeah. she felt like she had to, you know, pretend almost like she wasn't uh, a woman or didn't look any different than what people had expected in the role. So, you know, in Christy Clark's case, you know, she's the second uh, female premier of British Columbia, although with quite a bit of distance, and mm-hmm. uh, Rita Johnson was not in for a terribly long time. But, you know, the ability of women when they get into these roles to be able to make change and uh, further the objective of gender equity. I think is in part about who the woman is and her priorities, uh, but it's also about the, uh, you know, whether or not that system is receptive to a different kind of leadership and is open. And so, you know, in the case of Thatcher uh, or others, I think you know certainly we we can we can uh, comment on whether or not that that person accomplished much in terms of gender equity. But I think that the broader question remains about when we see different kinds of leaders uh, emerging systems, are those systems actually prepared to change? Indeed, indeed. Um, the, the, uh, uh, another part of the book that I found fascinating is, is you, you talked to, say, Al, you, may, you mentioned Alison Redford just a, just a moment ago. You, you talked to her about the controversy that saw her leave office. You talked to Pauline Marois about, or so, so, the other person who interviewed Pauline Marois, uh, t- uh, talked about the attempt on her life. Uh, Christy Clark talks about, um, uh, say, sexism and politics that she encountered. I guess when you, when you arrange these interviews with, with, with these uh, um, women, there was nothing off limits? Uh, no, I mean, certainly not that I expressed and not that they did either. They were remarkably honest and open about what it was like to reach our most senior political roles, including impacts on, you know, their families, personal safety, health, mental health, um, you know, impacts on marriages, impacts on kids. Yeah, there was a remarkable openness to the story, almost to the point where it became uh, a bit of an editorial decision about, you know, when sharing this through a podcast or now more recently through the book, mm-hmm. you know, it, we don't want to discourage people, especially uh, female-identified potential candidates, we don't want to discourage them from running by sharing how difficult it can be. Yeah. But on the other hand, you know, acknowledging that this is part of the experiences of women who reach these roles, I think, is an important uh, thing to capture if we hope to change it. So, but yeah, long, long, uh, long story short, there was nothing off limits and they were fabulously open about what the experience has actually been like. 
Yeah, I, I meant to, to listen to some of the, the podcasts before we uh, did this interview, but I just didn't have time to. But what I found fascinating is reading the book was how um, you can tell how candid they are or how comfortable they are talking to, to you. Um, and I guess that only comes from being in person, if you will, right? Yeah, I think definitely, you know, traveling uh, to their homes, most of these interviews took place you know, in their own living room or around their kitchen table, in one case on the front porch. So it was in a very comfortable setting. And we asked for like a couple of hours to sit down and really start at the beginning of, of their story and their journey and talk about the rise and then the fall mm-hmm. and what that point was where the, where things started to unravel. That was sort of the context in which the interview was set up. So I think they they knew we were, uh, together with Canada 20, going to have a a project with a lot of reach. We did have like tens of thousands of weekly listeners to the podcast tuning in to hear these stories, and so they were they were very open. And I think that comfort level did come from, you know, the purpose of the project was to share openly what what this experience is like. And they gracefully and welcomed uh, welcomed us into the home and allowed us to produce a project. Uh, and then all came together at the end of the project to co-author a letter, uh, which we capture in the book about what we need to see change if we want to see more diversity in our politics. So, yeah, it was a phenomenal project, and um, I, I do think part of it was the, the openness of the women to sharing their experiences. It wouldn't have worked without that. And I think it's your gift, too. I mean, that comes through as, as, as the um, uh, questioner, if you will, the interviewer. Um, oh, it re- really is a conversation, and, and I, one can read that, you know, which, which is not um, usually readable in, 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 say, you know, traditional transcripts, if you will. Well, thank you. That's kind of you to say. Um, in terms of setting the scene, um, uh, you mentioned that, that uh, where, where these interviews took place. What was it like to, say, arrange? Um, was there a lot of, say, back and forth? I mean, uh, that's the one part I hate about doing the podcast is, is uh, say, sitting with my <laughs> calendar and, and arranging everything. Was that was that tough, say? Uh, yeah, although we had a, um, you know, I, this, the podcast No Second Chances was produced by the Canada 2020 team, uh, hosted uh, by me. But we had uh, a great team of people working on this. And so the, the interviews involved myself, uh, a phenomenal uh, videographer named Adam Kaplan, and an audio um, expert who produced the podcast uh, named Aaron Reynolds. So it was the three of us traveling to their homes. And so we were asking for basically a full day in terms of setup and, and so on. And so, you know, we... We worked around calendars, but also with the geography. We were traveling literally from yeah. coast to coast to coast, so making sure that they fit in sequence and we could be there for the amount of time it would take was was tricky at points, but but all worked out in the end. Well, were there people that you wanted to talk to but didn't? Um, the only thing so you mentioned the um, interview with Paul Marois was conducted. We uh, we engaged a French speaking journalist um, because I my French is terrible and uh, certainly not. An interview that we, you know, it should be an interview conducted in French and spoken in French, and an mm-hmm. episode hosted in French. So, so I didn't have the opportunity to meet her, um, but it was great that she was uh, still such a big part of the project. But no, um, we we had a, we had, you know, even uh, Kim Campbell, you know, she keeps a very busy schedule even now, and it was wonderful that she made so much time to to be a part of the project. So we were really lucky that way. Did you talk to Rita Johnston? Um, I didn't talk to Rita Johnson. No, sorry, that's the other um, uh, the other absence. But I did get in touch with her daughter. Mm-hmm. So due to her health was the reason that she wasn't included in the project. I see. But we did, um, in terms of the, the video material, the podcast uh, references Rita's career, all of the work includes her in the group, even though she personally wasn't 
uh, in a position to participate. But it was important that we stay in touch with her family and that they were well aware of the project. We've sent them copies of the children's book and the adult book so that uh, they feel connected to this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And she signed the letter at the end of the book. Yes. Yep, through her daughter. Indeed. Um, you sought office in, in 2018 with, with Kathleen Wynne and, and the Liberals. That, that was a tough election. Um, how much um, different was it for you as a, as a female candidate that there was a female leader? Oh, I, I mean, I, I certainly I continue to be uh, a big fan of Kathleen Wynne. She's the first uh, female and uh, openly gay premier in Ontario. And a lot of the things that she had accomplished in office from you know raising minimum wage to really aggressive action on climate change are things that I cared about. So um, I was motivated in part to run um, because she was the leader at the time. But I, you know, so much of the anger during that election was really directed very personally and very viscerally at Kathleen, and that was really the origin of this entire project. As I was mm. really surprised at the door by you know it's one thing if people have a policy dispute you know they're angry about sure, yeah. hydro or whatever that's that's all fair game. But when it's like I don't like her. I don't like her face. I don't like the sound of her voice. I don't think she's a leader. The kinds of things that you just don't hear. You know, we've, uh, you know, Doug Ford in the last election, you don't hear people say, well, I don't like his face. as a reason for not voting for him. So these are, you know, they're gendered. In her case, you know, homophobia also factored in. And and it was really eye-opening for me, knocking on thousands of doors, hearing just how present that was in the discussion, at least in that election. But... Uh, ultimately, it's what led to to this project, and and I hope the beginning of, you know, an ongoing and needed conversation about how do we how do we acknowledge where uh, things like sexism and misogyny are playing into our political discourse, so that we can change it. And and so when you were going door to door, and people would say the, these ridiculous things to you, how do you not react as, as uh, angrily, if you will, or, or engage in a debate when you're you're because um, you're not supposed to as a candidate, I guess, do do those things. Um, what was that like for you? Well, I think, you know, in my, in my normal life, I, you know, I teach political science at here in University College, and I've uh, done a number of research projects before this. And so in some ways, when the discussion would go to a place like that, I feel like it sort of um, uh, triggered like a researcher mode in me. Mm. So when someone would say, well, I just, I just don't like her face, I would always just respond very calmly and say, can you tell me more about that and really try to understand and one of the interesting things was people often had a really hard time explaining why they felt that way. And I think part of it, you know, we could uh, dive very deep into this, but during that campaign there was a, an organized campaign led by a group called Ontario Proud where there were photos, very unflattering photos of the Premier's face that people were seeing in their social media feeds, mm. like nonstop. And so the feeling that they had about the Premier was, I think, very much based in this, like, constant nonstop influence um, where you know politics was sort of being framed in a particular way, and she was being framed in a particular way. And when you ask someone to explain, like you know, why is like why why is that determining how you're going to vote in this election? They would have a really hard time. And I and I hope, you know, not getting angry about it, but instead just kind of inviting a bit of reflection on it. I hope that in some cases, you know, maybe on the other side, when that door closed, they thought. Yeah, you know, maybe that isn't the best reason that I can come up with about why I'm voting the way that I am in this election or why I evaluate the leaders uh, in the way that I am right now. That might be a bit uh, Pollyanna of me, but I, I hope that those discussions prompted reflection uh, on all sides. They, they certainly did for me. You know, one of the remedies in the book is, is to, to raise the level of political, political discourse. 
um, that uh, what you just said, um, considering that, um, I don't see in, in this day and age with, with the Internet the way it is, with the, with, the, with the trucker convoy and sort of the rhetoric that we're seeing on the right, a rise in political discourse anytime soon. Oh, I, I mean, I, I certainly, I, I see the things that you are seeing, and I, I do agree that there's lots of cause for um, being quite worried about yeah. the state of our democracy right now. But I, I still, you know, maybe it's a, I need to cling to a hope that you know we create these problems and we can fix them. Mm. You know, I spent, I mentioned, I, I teach political science, so I spend a lot of time with young people every week hundreds of them in classes talking about politics. And generally speaking, I find those to be moments that are, you know, filled with hope because I do think younger people uh, have a greater awareness of some of the dangers of social media. I think they um, are being taught to have a more critical eye about the information that they're seeing, what's true and what's not, being able to distill, you know, what is edited fact versus what is, you know, just somebody's opinion or, or worse where there's an underlying objective. So, and I, and I, I get that, you know, university political science students is not exactly a representative sample. Uh, they should be interested in those things uh, by virtue of taking the courses that they are. But I, I think, um, I, I do think that there is hope that we, we've created these problems and we can solve them. And I think the next generation has a greater awareness and a greater opportunity to do so than perhaps, um, you know, than perhaps I feel like I do right now. Um, one of the the uh, uh, huge figures, I guess, in, in, in because I was just thinking, Rita Johnson was the first, so that was 1991, uh, up to say 2022. Um, one of the, the huge figures in, in, in not just in, in the United States but around the world was Hillary Clinton, and and seeing uh, what she went through from the 90s on, straight through to 2016 and beyond. Um, there's a lot of, uh, I guess, uh, sort, of, sort of a lot of lessons that that, that um, um, people in politics can say uh, glean from her. Um, did, did, I guess when you talk to these these women leaders, as you did, um, she was a name, a name that came up a lot, right? She certainly was. Yeah, and I would say in particular, um, the Kim Campbell chapter includes a lot of reflections. You know in the words of Kim Campbell, on Hillary Clinton's experience and how she was described and um, the sort of reference to her as being a failed candidate, mm-hmm. you know, laying the blame for what happened um, as some perceived deficiency on her as a candidate in a way that, you know, I, I don't think that people describe, uh, and certainly in that election, you know, her emails and her pantsuits and so yeah. on like, are not exactly of the same caliber of the kinds of complaints that people should and uh, and did raise about Donald Trump. So mm-hmm. the highly gendered election and watching, especially in these, you know, high celebrity, tons of pressure, very visible instances where women get close to reaching the top and then fall or do reach the top and then fall shortly after, you know, thinking about what kind of effect that has on the pipeline of people thinking about maybe pursuing that path someday. You know, we don't fully understand or know the extent to which that, you know, dampened women's spirits for wanting to run for office or become the president of the United States or the prime minister of Canada. So they are important uh, examples, I think, for us to reflect on. And, and I hope, I, I think the book does a, uh, I hope it does a good job of capturing at least uh, Kim Campbell's uh, thoughts on watching that encounter and, and what the ramifications are, uh, even across borders. So when you talk to young uh, people today, young women especially, um, 
do, do, uh, do they seem interested in wanting to, to seek office, say, and, and, and do, do they cite examples like what Hillary Clinton went through as, as something that would, say, dissuade them from, from doing so? Uh, and again, I, I acknowledge that I'm probably seeing a, you know, a, a sort of biased sample of, of young people, but in the, you know, students we are seeing, they have, they have grown up in an age where, you know, they are very connected around the world all the time and always have been. They have access to all the information that they need about any topic, uh, you know, in the palm of their hand, and they have for their entire lives. And so the awareness about global issues, the depth of concern about things going on, you know, around the world, it's, it's higher than what I, what I think I remember from when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think they, they do understand that politics is, you know, nothing affects more people than politics. It's a really powerful and important tool for solving big problems that we face. So I, I think there is, there's a lot of motivation there, but, it, but it's not just running for office. There's lots of ways to be able to engage in the political process. And I'm, I personally am really inspired by some of the ways we see young people like, you know, Greta Thunberg is kind of a classic textbook example, but, you know, just being willing to stand up for what you care about and be, uh, you know, relentless Mm -hmm. in pursuing the kind of change that you want to see in the world and not necessarily having to use traditional vehicles to do that, but uh, use your voice in the place and space you are. Um, I see that kind of drive and fire in young people all the time. And as I said, it's, it's what gives me tremendous hope for the future. Well, let's talk about some of, some of the, the, the things that, that, that can happen, that, that should happen. Uh, in terms of, of, of political parties uh, recruiting, say, women, um, it's one thing to say uh, recruit uh, women, and, and the majority of women in your book are, are, are white women, um, a greater diversity of women. Um, yes. How do you think that happens and it happens quickly, say? Yes, I think uh, there are lots of ways, and we, and we have seen some progress on this front, where uh, parties, when they're recruiting candidates, when they're going through, um, you know, even the selection of who is going to be in the leadership roles at the riding level, who's mm-hmm. going to be doing candidate search, and so on, really deliberately and intentionally thinking about diversity and the intersectionality and what is that group of candidates that we would like to run with and ideally that we would like to see win. Um, I think historically one of the challenges has been even parties where they would have higher numbers of women running, for example, if they would have more women running in unwinnable seats, the seats they were least likely to succeed. So then you end up with, after the election, the same kind of historic mm-hmm. imbalance. So so having a more nuanced look at, you know, if we're going to set goals like at least 50% women, at least 50% people from um, underrepresented communities, we need representation of indigenous people, people who uh, have experience living in poverty and so on, uh, kind of overlaying that with the broader campaign strategy of those who is running where and um, how do we support candidates who, you know, have historic, they belong to groups that have historically faced barriers. What kind of supports are we prepared to put in place to help them be successful? So I, I think uh, each party has an obligation if they, if they aspire towards a more equitable Canada of doing the work when it comes to getting ready for elections and supporting their teams of candidates where equity is front and center of that strategy and drives the work that they're doing after putting together a team and then ultimately running a campaign. So, so we'll all be looking at Alberta because that'll be a unique situation where, where the, the, uh, the, the two main party leaders are, are female. Yeah. yeah, that's new, but yes. Indeed. Um, where, where else are you looking in the country in terms of, of uh, where the possibility of, of, of a woman, say, emerging for uh, in high office uh, shortly um, 
I mean, where is that a possibility? I mean, we'll also be looking to Manitoba. There will be an election there shortly as well, right? Yeah, I think when you look at opposition parties, there are some really exciting women leading uh, opposition parties, and, and there are also, I would say, even within parties that are, you know, so we've got uh, you know a male prime minister, but he has very intentionally made equity a part of uh, his mandate, his cabinet, you know, yeah. first gender balanced cabinet, uh, a very strong bench of leaders within that party who've taken you know, high-profile leadership roles uh, on major files. And so I think when we look across the country at the landscape of parties and, you know, even in places like Ontario, we've got two major political parties who will be having a leadership race in the next year. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it, there is certainly some, uh, some promise. But the, I have to say, when I, when I think about kind of the places that give me hope in Canada, uh, the territories, I think, have been... Mm, yeah. we, we sort of under-celebrate, you know, how consensus models of government can work and what does it mean to see uh, sort of different ways of evaluating and choosing leaders. And, you know, right in the country we have these examples where the path has been quite different and uh, and they have done a better job, I think, of reflect of, of having governments who reflect the people that they serve. Uh, in some cases, Carolyn Cochran today, for example, you know, she's not only a female premier, but she has lived in poverty. She's She shares this in the book. You know, she's experienced all kinds of difficulties that, by virtue of having that in her background, it makes her a better leader because her empathy and her understanding is so is so high. So, yeah, I think, you know, I hope that this is something that we continue to see progress on across the country and um, across party stripes and across uh, geography. It has to be something that parties care about if we're going to see, you know, that dial start to move. Uh, we just had municipal elections here in in, Van- in British Columbia, I should say. Yes, I-, I believe yes. in Ontario, um, you're going to the polls shortly. Yes, yeah, there's five provinces and territories that all have elections within about five weeks, with 800 municipal elections. Yeah, so so do you see um, a a difference in terms of what happens on that level of government as opposed to, say, the the, the provincial level? Uh, Yeah, although I wouldn't, uh, I'd be less less sort of optimistic in how I would describe it, so I I know the Ontario example best um, because I live in Ontario, and what we're seeing is, you know, overall far fewer candidates running like period, mm-hmm. uh, we have uh, I believe the number of 39 mayors who were acclaimed. We have 100 and or sorry 39 entire councils who were acclaimed, and almost 140 mayors who were acclaimed. Uh, still huge underrepresentation of women, underrepresentation of diversity. Um, in some communities, we've seen that get worse after the pandemic, where I, I think we we've stepped back a bit, maybe because of the uneven impacts of the pandemic. Mm. Uh, on on women and on racialized communities, um, certainly on women with children in particular in terms of disruptions to their work and so on. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to study kind of after these elections are all done uh, what has happened and if we're seeing progress or if we're seeing a retreat and then what we need to do to do about that. Kate, this is such an important book. Uh, continued good luck with it. Thanks for this. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. The website for more is at nosecondchances.ca. The book is called No Second Chances, Women and Political Power in Canada. It's published by Second Story Press. Its author, Kate Graham, joined me on the line from London, Ontario. In Vancouver, I'm Joseph Planta.